But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And now from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Gail and I were on vacation doing the trains in Switzerland. And it seemed that every time we got on a train, every time we got off a train, every time we went to one of the beautiful little hotels up in the Alps, there would be two or three families of Hasidic Jews. Are you familiar with Hasidic Jews? Uh, The men were all dressed in black, long black coats, black trousers, very white shirt. The little boys all dressed in black suits like their dads. All the men had the little forelocks of their hair carefully curled just in front of their ears, black hats on. All of them had big families. They believed the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. So about every 18 months, another baby. When we got back, I said to Rabbi Charles Sherman, uh, we saw so many Hasidic Jews in Switzerland. Are there lots of Hasidic Jews in Switzerland? He said, what did you see? I described and he said, you were seeing the same families over and over. (laughs) I said, no, we weren't. We weren't. Well, how much do these Hasidic Jews remind you of our friend Rabbi Charles Sherman? How much do Amish Christians dressed all in black, horse and buggies, look like Pope Benedict XVI on Christmas Eve night with all of his finery at St. Peter's in Rome. How much does worship at our Greek Orthodox Church, Father Bill Christ and his congregation, look like that of Pentecostals in Tulsa on a Sunday morning? And yet we're all taking our behavior from the same book. Do you find that strange that we're all reading the same book and we look and act and worship in such different ways? Look at this text with me because this has been a troublesome text for religious people in dealing with each other and this all-important book. Number one, I underline that part, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, this text in Greek is really an unusual word. It's a combined word. It begins T-H-E-O, Theo, God. And the second part of the word is P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. It's the same root as pneuma, from which we get words like pneumonia, and means in Greek wind, breath, spirit, depending on the context. So this literally says, all holy writ is God-breathed. It's all God-breathed. So Dr. Jewett Bastler in her commentary says, that has led many people to believe, therefore all scripture is inerrant came straight from God's mouth, and not a comma, not a question mark has ever been altered. 
And that's not right. Today, we can print a million copies of a translation, and they're all exactly the same. But until 500 years ago, there was no printing press before Gutenberg. Every manuscript we have of the Bible in the great museums of the world are different, one from the other, no two exactly alike. Which one is the inerrant one? But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. This year, 200th birthday of Charles Darwin. 1809 he was born. He was trained to be a priest in the Anglican Church. Felt led into science. And you know one fateful trip to the Galapagos Islands changed his life forever. He saw things on the Galapagos Islands that he couldn't fit with what he knew about Europe, where he lived. Couldn't make them fit. He kept doing research and wrote a manuscript called The Origin of the Species, but he was afraid to publish it because he knew that 150 years before, a much-beloved Anglican bishop had added up all the begets in the Bible and he decided that creation occurred on a rainy Tuesday afternoon in October not quite 6,000 years ago. And what Darwin was seeing just didn't fit with what Bishop Usher had written. Ten years before Charles Darwin was born, there was a little girl, baby girl, born down on the cliffs of England. Her name was Mary Anning. Her family were very poor. She was a girl, so she didn't get to go to school. Her father died when she was only 11. Her mother had younger babies, needed to spend as much time with them as possible, so Mary wandered along the beach. And as she wandered along the beach, she not only found beautiful and interesting shells, she also started to find fossils. One day she had one of these fossils in her hand when a tourist from London sunbathing on the beach, saw it and asked how much she wanted for it. She offered a very modest little price. He eagerly paid and took her fossil away. So she found another and sold it, and another and sold it. And then she discovered that if she climbed up the cliffs, she could find really interesting ones. Her family had always been a part of the Anglican Church. She had been taught to go to church every Sunday, and Mary went. But even though she was just a teenage girl and without formal education, she knew that what she was hearing about Bishop Usher's ideas on when creation occurred just wasn't fitting somehow. Because she found certain fossils only at one level in the cliff, and if she climbed ten feet higher, entirely different fossils. And ten feet higher than that, entirely different fossils. It was she about whom it was said, she sells seashells by the seashore. More and more came to buy from Mary Anning. And one weekend there was an Anglican priest with a six-year-old son, and Mary said to this priest, Father, what I'm hearing on Sunday 
isn't quite making sense here because I find that these fossils are in one level of the cliff and these in a different level and these in a different level. And I think they've been here a long, long time. That six-year-old boy did not forget what Mary had said. He wrote it down when he got home that night. And as a man, he began to pursue and pursue what he had heard. Yeah, it just didn't quite mesh. In fact, those cliffs where Mary found all those fossils have yielded so many in the last 200 years, it's called the Jurassic Coast. Fossils dating back 150 million years where Mary dug to feed her family. So, this is a different kind of book. It's not a book about anthropology. It's not a book of archaeology. It's not a book of astronomy. It's a book of theology. Theoslogia, words about God. One of my professors said, every page you read should render this question, what is this saying about God? Not what is it saying about archaeology, anthropology, astronomy. What is this page saying about God? All the writers of the Bible thought the earth was flat. All the writers of the Bible thought the sun went round the earth every 24 hours. All writers of the Bible thought the earth was the center of the universe. They were wrong. This is a different kind of book. It's a book about God. And the question, the only legitimate question every page is, what is God doing here? And what is God willing to reveal to us about God's own self through the heart and the mind of a very primitive writer limited by his own time and place. Number two, you've known these holy writs since you were a child. The Reverend Eva Marie Campbell hopes that's so. She's spending her life trying to make it so. If you bring your children, if you bring your grandchildren, your nephews and nieces, Eva Marie and lots of folks who are helping her will help your children know these holy writ from the time they are children. They will help you help them know. I hope you read other kinds of stories. Where the Wild Ones Are, you know that one? It's been made into a movie now. Maurice Sendak wrote this little story, Where the Wild Things Are, Where the Wild Things Are. It only has 338 words. I was reading a preview of this movie in the Wall Street Journal, and so I just decided to count how many words fall in a line. They average six words per line, you know, column. So if you divide that into 338, you get about 50 lines. About this long, about this wide. That would encompass all of Maurice Sendak's book. Now it's been made into a feature-length movie. So obviously it's been expanded. And some reviewers like the movie. Some don't like it so much. The reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, Joe Morgenstern, said it's terrific. He loved it. 
It's a story about a little boy named Max. One night, Max misbehaves. So his mother gets angry, sends him to his room without supper. In his room, he pouts. And then he decides to dream, to think. And suddenly the wild things come into his room. All these wild things, sort of like real things, sort of not like real things. And they all bow down eventually to Max and make him their king. Great dream for a little boy, don't you think? Little girl either. Well, the movie picks up from there. You see, Max's father has gone away with somebody else. He's no longer there. His mother does get angry from time to time. Max gets put out with her. She has a boyfriend he doesn't like. And his little sister's not always nice to him, nor he to her. And so he imagines all these wild things, bigger, scarier, bowing down to him and making him their king. Mr. Morgenstern said in his review, I think Max is trying to solve all the problems of his life. He's troubled. His father's gone away. His mother's frustrated, not knowing just how to take care of these two little ones she's got. She's got a boyfriend that the kids don't like. He's trying to fix everything in his life. And the problem is, of course, he can't. He can't. But this book, you say, is about one who can. This book is about one who can. It says he wants to. Really wants to set all things right. And your child, your grandchild, needs to know what's in this book taught by people who understand it. Number three. This book teaches you about salvation in faith in Christ Jesus. It's about salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what this author says. Okay, faith is a synonym for trust. Salvation doesn't just mean what happens to you after you die. In Hebrew and Greek, the word salvation has more to do with wholeness, completeness. What does it take to take a fragmented life, a fragmented family, a fragmented community, a fragmented world, and make whole people, whole families, whole communities, a whole world that cares for each other. That's what salvation is about. And this author says, we come to know about that wholeness of life through faith in Christ Jesus. And what that means is, when we read this all-important book properly, we discover that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, but not 6,000 years ago. That the heavens and the earth were created billions of years ago. That the earth is a rather mediocre planet going around a rather mediocre star in a rather mediocre galaxy among billions of others. But the one who created all of that 
loves every little girl and every little boy ever born and loves them all the same. Not one more than the other, not one less than the other. Loves them all the same, which includes you, of course. And if you trust that God does, in fact, love you because that's who God is, that God wants good to come to you because that's who God is, that God grieves when bad things are happening to you because that's who God is, and you open the door and ask him to come in, he will. He will come in. You know the name Ralph Stanley? Bluegrass fans will know that name. Ralph Stanley. He was being interviewed the other morning on the radio as I was going from hospital to hospital. So I was picking up parts of this interview. No face came to mind. And then lo and behold, there in the newspaper was a, a review of his book. Uh, a book that someone's helped him write when he's 82 years old. Ralph Stanley grew up in Virginia. He was born in a small little community where all the men either ended up being coal miners or lumbermen working at old sawmills. If you worked in the mines, sooner or later you had black lung. If you worked in the sawmills, sooner or later you lost fingers or part of a hand. Not an exciting way to live. Ralph Stanley really came to prominence when he was 75 because he sang a song on a movie called Oh Brother Where Art Thou and he won a Grammy for it when he was 75 still singing he's 82 now but when he was a little boy with younger brothers and sisters his daddy fell for a younger woman and disappeared in the middle of the night Ralph says he didn't even tell us goodbye. Ralph was 12. He said, I was asthmatic. I knew if I went down in that mine, I'd die. And if I went to work in an old sawmill, I'd end up with half of one of my hands. So I decided I wanted to be a singer. And my brother and I had modest little jobs, and we finally bought a guitar from Montgomery Ward for $3.45. And later we were able to get an old used beat-up banjo, and we started doing bluegrass. But not everything went well. As these brothers made a little bit more money, they drank a lot more. One member of their band died of alcohol poisoning when he was 31. One died because he was knifed to death in a fight because everybody was drunk when he was 34. Ralph's brother died gagging up blood from alcoholism and all that was related to it when he was just 41. Three members of the band gone, all of them directly related to alcohol abuse. After all these years that Ralph had sung bluegrass, including a lot of the old hymns of small-town churches in Virginia, he went forward one Sunday morning when he was 73 and asked if he could be baptized. He finally believed that God Almighty did really love him 
as much as anybody else in the world, no more than, but just as much as anybody else in the world. Number four. Dr. Joette Bastler, Dr. James Dunn, Dr. Hans Konzelman, and others say that the real important point about this key sentence here is not the part about the scriptures being God-breathed, but that it's useful. It's useful in helping you know the way to salvation. It's useful in helping you learn the ways of righteousness. And righteousness has to do with not only are we rightly related to God, and we are if we trust that we have God's love and receive God's gift of that love, we are rightly related to each other if we do agape. I reminded the chapel choir this morning, agape in Greek is not about falling for a beautiful young woman or a handsome guy. It's not even about cowboys who like cowboys and sooners who like sooners and fraternity brothers and sorority sisters. Agape is a lot tougher than all of that. It's about willing good and doing the good for people you may not even like, people you don't even know. Next Saturday, when we do good in the downtown of Tulsa, we'll be doing it for people we don't even know. People whom the city have lifted up for us as having special needs that we can meet. There is a coordinator here in the city that says, we know people who need. Could you cut somebody's weeds? Could you mow somebody's yard? Could you help winterize somebody's apartment or house? Those kinds of things. Could you paint out filthy, nasty graffiti from somebody's neighborhood? Those are the kind of jobs we'll be doing next Saturday because we take agape seriously, because we believe we're supposed to do agape. Remember last January, the miracle on the Hudson River, when Captain Sully Sullenberger and his crew got that jet down on the Hudson River, not one life lost, 159 lives saved. When they flew into a big flock of Canadian geese, uh, suddenly both engines, no power, they had just moments to make a decision. A lot more is coming about Captain Sullenberger. It's interesting to me that he hasn't really thrown his faith out at any given point. He hasn't said, I believe God loved me more than others who crashed, me more, these 159 more than 159 others in some other plane, some other time. But he did grow up in a Methodist church in Denison, Texas, just north of Dallas. I know this because the one sister of his is a very active member of Christ United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. Her pastor, Dr. Don Underwood, wrote in his column with her permission, not long after this miraculous landing on the Hudson River, that they grew up in the Methodist Church. They were baptized and professing Christians. Now there's a new book out, Dr. Sullenber uh, Captain Sullenberger's book. How he came to that place on that river last January. His father was a dentist. His mother was a school teacher. He said, they tried to teach my sister and me uh, self-proficiency. Well, at one point, my dad and mother wanted to add on to our house, so they went out and bought four hammers. Each of us had his or her own hammer. They bought four paintbrushes. They even bought each of us a little leveling gauge. We each had a ruler. They taught us measure twice before you cut once, and so on. They taught us 
self-proficiency, learning. I was five, he said, when I had my first ride in an airplane. I loved it right from the start. When I was 16, he said, I took flying lessons with a crop duster. He got into the Air Force Academy, was graduated, flew one of our very best fighter jets, and when his career was over the Air Force, sought a job as an airline pilot. He said, every time a plane has gone down, I've studied very carefully, very carefully, what happened. Was that plane properly maintained? Did the captain check everything he or she could have checked? I've studied, studied. Even when I was in Air Force Academy, he said, occasionally a young cadet would go down in an airplane. We had very sophisticated ejection systems that would pop you up from that jet, but they waited too late trying to save an airplane. They lost the plane in themselves. I tell you, when those geese went into my engines, that $60 million airplane was not top on my list. I had 159 people. People people. My own father, he said, committed suicide. I grieved that I could not save my own father, but I promise to do my best to save yours.